Dr. Maria Lynn, welcome back. It's great to see you. Dr. Greg, pleasure to see you too. <laughs> All right. So you've been on the show before, so I'm not going to get into the backstory. People can check that out if they choose to, but really excited to have you back because of course, mental health and resilience remain a significant challenge and remain to be critically important. And you have a really cool idea in your new upcoming book, which we're going to deal with today. And specifically, it's beginning with why successful people are at risk. So let's explore that a little bit. First of all, let's talk about like, what is success look like for most people? And why is that actually a risk for us? Yeah, great questions. It The book emerged out of that striking gap between we know so much about what we should do to maintain our resilience and yet the burnout rates that are the same or worse in many areas. And so then looking at, yeah, all those fabulously successful professionals and leaders accomplishing magnificent, complex things in their work and in their leadership and finding themselves at risk and at times actually burning out. And so it's looking at, okay, so what's happening to these individuals who are so fabulous in so many ways that at the same time will be uh, putting themselves, their health, their performance, the, their brand um, as professionals and leaders at risk. So that's what was the idea behind the book. I'm really interested in unpacking a little bit this tension between people who are able to function at a very high level, yet really struggle in the background regarding their health. It's literally the kind of question I was hearing in my work. I was hearing it by from audiences and from individuals in individual work I do as an executive coach and as a psychologist. Literally, people would tell me, MH, I accomplish such a level of complex type tasks and leadership and situations. And I go through all this. I've been resilient all these years. That's in fact how I got here. How complex can that be? Right? Because they look at, well, really, they, and then they, they look at the recommendations that they're they're hearing that we've all heard even more so in the past few years with the pandemic and additional awareness um, to burnout from the World Health Organization and mental health generally in the world. And so they're looking themselves at this, at the fact that they've trained for all these years to do very complex things, and they are doing, uh, accomplishing these with success, and then finding themselves at a moment where they can't keep producing, they can't keep being innovative and creative and continuing to bring their amazing skills and expertise because of what? just how their resilience is not going well. And so it is not extremely complex. It has complexities to it, as you and I know, you've written fabulous books about it as well. And research continues and is part of what keeps people like you and I in this field and so thrilled to be in it. Ultimately though, what I found is part of what needs to happen is to be strategic about what are you going to implement in a realistic way in your context. People are getting overwhelmed by the number of recommendations. Read these 20 articles you receive in your inbox. These 20 articles will tell you all the areas you need to pay attention to. They don't have time to read these articles. And even if they did, they would not have time to implement 
one fifth of them. And so as I was working with individuals who have often a business background, who use approaches from the business world to what they do, I used that analogy and started seeing the traction. And that's how it happened. When we start to apply some of these simple tactics strategically in the individual's context. So let's say we have someone or any listener, if you know, who's on, on this show right you, now, Greg, as an example, you know, yes. fair enough. Cause you know, let's be real about this. There have been moments over the last few years where I fully admit I was exhausted. I was burned out, like pivoting to digital now pivoting from digital back to hybrid and then hybrid to uncertain live versus virtual. Like it's been, it's been, it's been a lot. And that definitely took its toll. And as you mentioned, there is so much information coming at us from whatever newsletters we've signed up to, whatever podcasts we've listened to, whatever social media we follow with tons of recommendations. But it's almost like you have too much in order to be able to make a decision and you get paralysis by analysis. And I'm curious about how we go from that state to being strategic in our context about what to do. Yes, exactly. That is exactly the question that this book answers. And, and I'll tell you how, how I got there. So I was working, as I was saying, with individuals, many of which are in the business world. And at some point found myself coming up with this analogy and said, look, because they were telling me, seriously, how complicated can this be? Right. And I said, right, exactly. It is not that complicated, but we do need to be strategic about it. And then I said, okay, wait a second. If you were to launch or when you've launched a new service or a new product, whether it's in your organization, if you are an intrapreneur or an intrapreneur, when you've launched something new in the world, have you just decided, oh yeah, I'm going to launch this. And then you just put it out for sale. Or did you have this wonderful idea and then turned and looked at the context? Who else is offering exactly this or something similar to this? What's missing from their offering? Who is buying this thing right now? How much are they willing to pay for it? What could put this product at risk in the world, in the economic context we're in, in different countries? And then you'd be looking at what allows them to produce this thing so efficiently and profitably, right? You would ask all these questions about the context. You would look at, and this firm over here that's offering something similar, from which values are they operating from? What's their mission? Where are they going as an organization? You'd look at all this, and then you'll come back. You would come back at what you have in mind, refine this. And that, you see, all this process is something that either, if you're a very sort of structured MBA type, you would do a business plan that would allow you to answer all these questions. If you're more a free spirit who does not write these things down, you'd still be thinking about it because that's in part what makes you successful. That's what ensures that you are catching your blind spots. You're not just looking towards the shiny <laughs> light over here. You're making sure you're turning around. It forces you to do this. So the same approach came up here where I said, same situation. If we're all we're doing is saying, yeah, you should exercise more, eat better, sleep better, spend time with people, go in nature, all these things, that just stays here and it may not work. What we may need to do is also look at 
your values. So what's going to make this meaningful? Looking at what's happening in your context, what sources of supply do you have right now? What sources of demands do you have? Not just professional, personal as well, because it's all coming in the one person. And what's part of your context? Literally adapting the SWOT analysis to you personally. And again, none of these things takes forever. In the book, I've got worksheets, exercises, and they vary between one and five minutes because I know no one has time. <laughs> but it's once busy. you've done this, yes, go. Oh, no, I was wondering, once we've done this, I'm sure then that leads to a host of other steps that we can take. And you've mentioned a couple things that I want to dig into a little bit further. The word risk has come up a couple times, and I'm sure that everyone listening to this has understands like risk. And if you're in a business context, obviously you have to do risk analysis, where could things potentially derail your business in, in the railroad context, but then also in a personal situation, we need to think about like risk. It's why we have house insurance or car insurance. I right? like we're used to thinking about these things. But when it comes to our health and well-being, we don't often think about it. And we don't often do that sort of an analysis and thinking to figure out where could we potentially be at risk from a health perspective if we keep working the way that we're working. And so many of us are pedal to the metal, redlining still. And given the uncertainty and the change and the pace, that probably isn't going to change. So I'd love to hear a little bit more from you about this idea of risk when it comes to our health and wellness and how we need to consider that in order to maintain our ability to keep performing at a high level on an ongoing basis. Yes. I think that one of the key misconceptions that keeps us from approaching our health, wellness, resilience uh, from a risk management perspective at times is the positive bias. And it, you know, being optimistic uh, in our perspective is helpful in a number of ways, obviously, right? Expecting that things will go well, expecting that we will have energy, expecting that this new service or product that we're launching will go well. And it's very appropriate and helpful without being positively biased, being optimistic in our perspective. There's many things we would just not have ever tried. So it is very helpful to have it. However, there is a degree of this that sort of tips on the other side and becomes a liability. This constant assumption that we don't need to do anything about our resilience. It's always going to be there. The level of energy I have right now is going to be there forever. That's who I am. All these assumptions, they get in the way of us being realistic about what's going to happen. So wherever we are right now, when we're having this, listening to this conversation, or even you and I having it today, if we take a moment to look at, okay, we're feeling the way we are right now, assuming we're feeling fantastic. Okay. And we don't want to just assume it's going to stay like this. We are in this, potentially this moment in time where the next three months will be fairly busy, possibly the busiest in general on a 12-month rotation for us. Knowing that even if after these three months, you have maybe planned one or two weeks of vacation, some of these two weeks will actually become work. And the moment we return after just two weeks, following three months, very busy, is still, we're still not going to be like we were after our longest, most recent vacation, whenever that was. So then as we have opportunities coming our way, 
it may give us time, a moment to pause and, and actually reflect on how's going to be my energy in two months from now. What can I put in place to either maintain it or mitigate the demands, knowing realistically that it will still need a bit more time to climb back up. And then that makes us adjust our choices more realistically and more efficiently. Got it. So it's almost like prehab versus rehab, right? Like you're preventing it from happening in the first place rather than trying to figure out how to get back in the game after having a problem like an injury, for example. It's like avoiding the injury in the first place rather than rehabilitating the injury afterwards. Am I reading that correctly? It's a good analysis, yes. And often, if we continue on that physical analogy, athletes usually get to this point, high-level athletes, but even everyday athletes, people like that you exercise like you and I, we typically don't, we love this logic, makes sense. Do we do it? We only do it after we've paid for it for a few times, where we have not been preventative. We've got hurt. We did physio for months. We got back at it again. We again did not uh, prepare adequately. And only after a few rounds of this, we said, okay, fine. Now I will do it. Right. So same thing here. The logic itself, yeah, it makes sense. No. I have not yet met someone who would disagree with it. The challenge is doing it. And so in creating an approach that is straightforward, clear, based on principles we're already using in business, it makes it easier to implement. So let's let's explore that a little bit more deeply because two days ago in New York, I had a conversation with a friend of mine and it was all around the idea that we know what to do, but we don't do it. And that is a common refrain. Everyone knows we need to exercise more and we still don't exercise enough. We know we need to eat more vegetables. Maybe that's not happening. Like on and on and on and on and on. We know what we need to do, yet we there's a gap between what we know and what we actually do. I get the idea of being strategic about it, using our experience in business to develop the same approaches. But how do we actually get up in the morning and go for the walk? How do we actually put down the tablet turn off the lights and go to sleep. Like how do we actually do this from your experience? Who what are what do successful people do that actually make these lifestyle adjustments to improve their health and well-being? Yes. And the key a key part of the the of the answer uh, to this is they make one adjustment. They don't make these adjustments. They make one adjustment. And once this adjustment is in, the strategy can evolve for the next one adjustment. Because the reality is no one has two hours a day right now waiting for your and my recommendations and constant, like, no. <laughs> and that includes you and I, exactly, to your point. Yeah, absolutely true. True for me as well. So what this does is it makes it so realistic. And that's what I'm hearing from workshop participants after they step out and they're like, okay, I thought this would be complicated and I've never been clearer and finding things as simple as right now. I am crystal clear on my next action. I absolutely know I can implement it and I will. Simple as this. So the way we get there is through brief exercises that just focus us on our core values, which are individuals to each of us. We all have some ideas of what they are. We put them in writing, so they are in front of us. Okay. Then we identify the sources of supply and demand we have right now in our lives in a realistic way. So we're not 
positively biased about, oh yeah, no, no, I'm good. I've got not much going on. Wait a second. Your child's experiencing some challenges in their friendships right now. That's on your mind as a parent. Your parent's health is fine right now, but you never know. It may change. That's on your mind right now. Things are going on that sometimes people have even said to me in workshops, well, you know, my partner is dealing with this health issue, but I cannot write this here. Uh, yes, it goes on the list. You want to support them. That's wonderful. And it still represents a demand. So we want to be realistic with this. Right? So being clear on all these and being clear on the context so that we don't go out saying, I will exercise five times a week, half an hour. If the current context is constant international travel, that makes it absolutely impossible to do this. So we're not going to move about. away, <laughs> right? Carry we're on. not going to move away from it. We will find versions of it that are absolutely doable right now so we can maintain it. And that's what shifts the direction. Interesting. So it's that realistic realism and really understanding your priorities and then working within the context of our real situation, our real priorities, our real demands, because we could want to train for two hours a day. But the reality is you've got to take your daughter to gymnastics, and then you've got to take your son to hockey, and then you've got to make sure that you do what you need to do at work. And it's hard to fit it all in. So given all of that, how do we actually do this on a daily basis? That means that maybe you do five minutes of walking after you drop off your daughter at gymnastics, and maybe you're doing some push-ups against a park bench while your child is at hockey. Am I, is that is that right? Like we're just trying to fit this into our real experience and that's what makes it easier? Yes, that's what makes it implementable. And it also means that different people will choose different strategic pillars, different directions and different actions given where they're at right now. You may discover, for example, as you write your values and as you write your sources of supply and demand and all the things we do here, you may realize that one of the key things you need to do, even before you get to the point of implementing with more confidence some of these behaviors, you may have a pillar that's cal called boundaries, where part of your actions is to tr experiment, train yourself with either saying, no, if it's possible, or let me get back to you tomorrow. For a lot of people saying no is not possible. I know there's a rare, rare circumstances where it's possible. Often we cannot say no immediately, but very often we can say, I'd love to say yes, let me get back to you tomorrow. And what you're doing between today and tomorrow is you're going back to your list of demands to look at ways in which this may be done later, partially now, partially now with support, options may come may come up so it will help identify different types of uh pillars interesting you've spoken about values quite often in this chat and i've been thinking a lot about identity and how once you shift your identity that many of these practices become very easy if my identity is that i am an athlete who runs a business then it is easy for me to rationalize going out and doing a workout uh, if I have a client, for example, and we're chatting about this, she she may say, look, I'm I'm running a business. Uh, I'm a mom and I like to be fit. So therefore, I am a fit mom who runs a business. That is my identity with fitness being first, being a mom second, running the business third. 
So when we craft these values and identities, that helps us to guide the decisions that we make. Am I reading that correctly from your comments? Yes. And in the book, ultimately, there's a lot of theories in psychology that connect with each other from different sources, right? Research in a certain area at some point will connect with research in other areas and lead to similar conclusions. In the book, I'm, I'm referring to cognitive behavior therapy and specifically strength-based CBT, both in terms of the thoughts we have right now in trying to make changes, for example, also in terms of the beliefs we've had for decades at times related to how we approach our work, beliefs that may come from our personal life, but they may come from our industry. Sometimes we'll be in, in an industry where the belief is that a highly successful professional works all the time. Hmm. Or if you're a doctor, you, you're not a client. You don't need anything. You're not a patient. And some of these beliefs at some point become not helpful. Right? So in shifting these beliefs, in shifting our thoughts, which then can re be reflected, for example, in how we define ourselves, how we define our identity, you'll even see links between this and what we know now from research on priming the kinds of images and, and sentences we can expose ourselves to and how they'll help us attain our goals. So with, wherever it comes from, um, all of these go in the same direction of having clarity on where you're going with your goals, connection with your values, and then moving forward with these actions, which do include, yes, the language we use. I love the idea of priming and using mm -hmm media and language and words to get our brain into the state that we need to be in to accomplish the things that we want to accomplish or simply do the things we want to do. I'm wondering if you could expand upon that a little bit as well, because it's always fascinating to me about how the information in our world around us has such a powerful impact on our brains and on how and our mind and how we function and controlling that and managing it and crafting it actually is so powerful for us. Yes, yes. The the one of the interesting uh, pieces of research that has emerged in the past few years is uh, on priming and mostly one part of it is priming in the context of goal setting and goal attainment. And a lot of the research about goal setting and goal attainment involves things that many of us are familiar with, like having smart goals, goals that are attainable, not so high that you can't reach them, but high enough to be motivating and all of these. And all of these are very conscious processes, things we think about and prepare and implement. And the, two of the researchers, uh, Gary Latham and um, Dr. Locke in the US have done decades of work on goal theory, goal setting theory, recently adding the principles that are coming from non-conscious processes like priming. And what priming is, is exposing our brains to words or images that represent our goal. And what we know from research is doing this will actually increase our chances of reaching these goals. Now, a couple of key elements here. You still need all the conscious thinking and preparing and decision making. It doesn't go away. And there are fascinating pieces of research on this. But it is fairly established in different contexts, with different types of goals, with different types of people. It's, it's there. The impact is there that if we use priming, whether it's a word or an image, although we now know that images are even more powerful, we are going to increase our chances of reaching these goals. So concretely, for 
us here, okay, let's say my resilience plan is to increase more my resilience. And let's say I am very comfortable and confident in the research about meditation. I have still not done it. Okay, well, I probably want to identify realistically a moment and amount of time that I can do it for. For example, two minutes before my lunchtime. And if I were to use priming, which I do use, of course, <laughs> is I could have an image of someone meditating. And you, all you need is to have it somewhere you're going to see it. I have it here on my wall. And that contributes to reaching my goal. So that's one of the ways to use priming. I love it. What's your resilience plan right now? What are you working on? Ah, the mindfulness uh, for me. So it has elements. Some of, one of, some of my actions are that to keep the meditation with a certain amount of time, ideally on a daily basis and a minimum amount of time as well. So it's never zero. Basically, that's the, the goal, which most of the time I, I reach not 100%, but that's okay. You miss one day or whatever, you get back on it the following day. That's all we need to do. So that's one of mine uh, here, both because seriously, this phase for me with the book coming out, and you're familiar with this, oh, is yeah. extremely busy and I want to enjoy it. Mm. Um, and so that's a, that's a big part why that was one of my goals. Yeah. Well, hopefully you enjoy it because all the people on this show buy your book. And if they wanted to do that and learn a little bit more about your work, where should they go? TheResilienceplan.com. Uh, they will get everything there. The book, the website, the kinds of things that I do as well. TheResilienceplan.com. Marie-Hélène, thank you so much for joining us. I really appreciate it. It was great to have you on the show again. Thank you for all your work. Thanks for what you're putting out into the world. It's super helpful. And we're really grateful for you taking your time to hang out with us today. Oh, great. Thank you. Pleasure is all mine.